You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the 34th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We left off last time with President Abraham Lincoln having finally made the decision to send a relief expedition to Fort Sumter. To that end, on April 4, 1861, Lincoln ordered Gustavus Fox to prepare ships for that mission. The president then sent a note to Major Robert Anderson, urging him to hold out, if possible, until the relief expedition's arrival on April 11th or 12th, but authorizing surrender if Anderson deemed it necessary to save his men. Lincoln also sent a very carefully worded note to Governor Pickens of South Carolina, saying that the naval expedition was merely delivering needed provisions to Sumter, and that no attempt to land reinforcements, arms, or ammunition would be made unless the relief mission was fired upon. In the last show, you guys will recall how we stressed the fact that with his clever gambit to send in provisions only and to give advance notice that that was his intent, Lincoln was essentially telling Jefferson Davis, heads I win, tails you lose. Because if the Southerners allowed the supplies to go through, the North would win an important symbolic victory. While if the South fired on the relief expedition, then on it would rest the blame for starting the war. We should point out that back in 1861, people questioned Lincoln's motives and purposes in the Sumter resupply plan. And since then, historians over the years have also debated Lincoln's intentions. You don't have to look far, even today, to find those who condemn Lincoln for ruthlessly manipulating the Confederacy into firing the opening shots of the Civil War. It's our opinion, though, that Abraham Lincoln would have been perfectly happy to have the resupply mission go through unmolested and thus have peace preserved for a bit longer but that he probably expected the Confederates to open fire. After all, Lincoln had plenty of reason to believe that the Confederates would open fire on a peaceful resupply mission since they had already fired upon the Star of the West. In the end, Lincoln made his decision and was willing to risk war because he wasn't going to stand idly by and let Major Anderson and the garrison at Fort Sumter be starved into submission by the secessionists. In his inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln had pledged to hold, occupy, and possess the federal properties in the seceded states, and the president intended to keep his word. Gustavus Fox's expedition to relieve Sumter steamed southward. 
Once Fox had received President Lincoln's order to go ahead with the relief mission, he moved quickly to organize the ships and see that they were loaded with troops and supplies. For the expedition, Fox had the passenger steamer Baltic, three New York City tugboats, the warships Pocahontas and Pawnee, and the armed revenue cutter Harriet Lane. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells instructed Captain Samuel Mercer, the officer in command of the naval forces supporting Fox's mission, that he was to force a passage into Charleston Harbor if resistance was met. But Fox realized that the Pocahontas and Pawnee, by themselves, probably wouldn't have enough firepower to blast their way into the harbor, so he told Wells that what he really needed was a naval force muscular enough to suppress the Confederate shore batteries if that's what was required. So Wells offered to add the powerful USS Powhatan to the flotilla. That ship was armed with 10 9-inch Dahlgren guns and one 11-inch pivot and Powhatan just happened to be at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, refitting after being worn down by a recent long deployment. But there then ensued what could be described as a comedy of errors, except the word comedy probably isn't appropriate since the stakes were so high. But to make a long story short, here's what happened regarding the Powhatan. Secretary of State William H. Seward kind of took on the relief of Fort Pickens down in Pensacola as his own pet project, and so he oversaw the preparations for that expedition to Florida. But as far as the preparations, Seward managed to convince Lincoln that secrecy was absolutely necessary and that only those with the need to know, well, needed to know. Unfortunately, Seward even kept the Pickens preparations secret from Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, since Seward believed the Department of the Navy was loaded with Southern sympathizers. This all took a turn for the worse when Seward, wanting a powerful naval warship for his expedition, secretly ordered the Powhatan to accompany the Fort Pickens mission. On the evening of April 5th, when Seward suddenly realized that Wells had issued conflicting orders to the Powhatan, well, the Secretary of State suspected the Secretary of the Navy was trying to sabotage his, Seward's, expedition to Pensacola. And so, despite the late hour, Seward and his son Frederick went to Wells' home. Supposedly, they woke Wells from a sound sleep, which wouldn't have put the Secretary of the Navy in a good mood anyway. But then, when the upset Secretary of State explained why they were there, Wells, in turn, was furious that the Secretary of State had interfered in naval matters that were none of his business. Wells was terribly upset, and realizing the gravity of the matter, he insisted the men go directly to the White House and explain the problem to the president. Well, on the way over to the executive mansion, Seward apparently realized he'd stuck his nose in where it didn't belong, and he supposedly told Wells that he learned a valuable lesson from the whole episode— that he would hereafter stick to State Department business. Anyway, so it was almost midnight when the men reached the White House, but Abraham Lincoln wasn't asleep. He was still up working. One can only imagine, though, what the President thought when he was told that Seward and Wells were there at that hour and wished to see him. But then, as he heard the men out, Lincoln realized that although he'd approved both missions, he'd only given permission for the Powhatan to go to Florida because that ship wasn't on the original list of ships assigned to the Sumter mission. 
But now, with the matter laid out before him, Lincoln thought the more important expedition to Fort Sumter should certainly have priority on use of the Powhatan. So the president gave instructions that Seward's orders regarding the powerful warship would be rescinded and that the Powhatan should head to South Carolina and rendezvous with the rest of the Sumter flotilla. But in the last act of the Comedy of Errors, the Powhatan steamed out of New York Harbor at 2.30 on the afternoon of April 6th, bound for Florida, and the orders instructing her to instead accompany the Sumter expedition arrived a half hour later. A fast tug carrying the new orders managed to catch up with the just-departed warship, but since the new orders were simply signed Seward, and since David Dixon Porter, the naval officer in command of the Powhatan, had other, older orders in his pocket signed by the president himself, instructing him to steam to Florida, Porter decided to disregard the more recent communication and continue on with his original mission to support the Pickens expedition. And so, because of the Secretary of State's secrecy and unwarranted interference in naval matters, the mission to relieve Fort Sumter went ahead without the most powerful warship and its guns that would be needed if the relief expedition met with resistance. Meanwhile, even aside from the Powhatan drama, which he knew nothing about, Gustavus Fox and his Sumter expedition were having troubles of their own. That's because, after the ships sailed, a gale along the Atlantic coast had tossed about the Sumter flotilla, and strong winds and heavy waves had scattered the expedition's ships. And so on April 11th, the revenue cutter, the Harriet Lane, was the first to arrive alone at the rendezvous point 10 miles outside the mouth of Charleston Harbor. It wasn't until 3 o'clock in the morning, early the next day, April 12th, that Fox arrived on the unarmed steamer, the Baltic. And then it was just after dawn on the 12th when the USS Pawnee showed up at the rendezvous point. Fox promptly boarded the warship and said he wanted the Pawnee to follow him in toward the harbor and then stand by while he provisioned Fort Sumter. But much to Fox's dismay, the Pawnee's captain said he was under orders to make no move until the Powhatan arrived on the scene. Remember that Fox and the others on the Sumter expedition all still thought the Powhatan had been assigned to their expedition and would show up at the rendezvous. Exactly. And so Fox was frustrated that the only warship to show up so far, the Pawnee, was going to sit tight for the time being. But he went back to the Baltic and, escorted by the armed revenue cutter, the Harriet Lane, proceeded in toward the harbor. But as the Baltic approached Charleston, Fox realized something was terribly wrong. As the ship drew closer to the harbor, he could hear the boom of heavy guns and see smoke rising in the distance. The Confederates were bombarding Fort Sumter. Abraham Lincoln's message about the relief expedition to Fort Sumter was given to Governor Pickens on the evening of Monday, April 8th, by the State Department clerk who had been entrusted with the mission. Pickens asked if General Beauregard could be brought in, since the Confederate officer was in charge of military affairs, and then the governor read the message to Beauregard. 
When Pickens said he would compose a reply, the clerk, a fellow named Robert Chu, said he was not authorized to receive any communication. His mission had simply been to deliver the message to the governor, and so Chu promptly left Charleston on the 11 p.m. train. The news of Lincoln's message was telegraphed to Montgomery, Alabama, where it was received by Jefferson Davis. On April 9th, Davis met with his cabinet to discuss the situation at Charleston. Davis knew that a continuing federal presence at Fort Sumter would undercut Confederate bids for international recognition, and perhaps even cause enthusiasm for secession to begin to wane within the seceded states. And then there were the still wavering border states to consider. The Confederacy was desperate to have those slave states, such as Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee, join them. And Davis knew that if Sumter was fired upon, and then Lincoln met force with force, it would almost certainly push the fence sitters into the Confederacy. And then, quite apart from any practical considerations, many Southerners were pressuring Davis, clamoring for action against Sumter, since they viewed the situation in Charleston Harbor as an intolerable slight upon Southern honor. Besides all of that, Davis knew that events had reached the point that the hotheads in South Carolina probably could not be restrained from opening hostilities. And so, with all those considerations in mind, Jefferson Davis argued for opening the bombardment on Sumter. The others at the cabinet meeting agreed with the president, all except Robert Toombs, the Confederate Secretary of State. The fire eater Toombs, who in many ways was the most reckless man in the room, surprised everyone by urging caution and prudence. But as the debate went on and Toombs could tell Jefferson Davis had already made his decision, Toombs told Davis, Mr. President, at this time it is suicide, murder, and will lose us every friend in the North. You will wantonly strike a hornet's nest which extends from the mountains to the ocean, and legions, now quiet, will swarm out and sting us to death. It is unnecessary. It puts, puts us in the wrong. It is fatal. But Toombs was the lone voice of dissent. The Confederate cabinet met again the next day, Wednesday, April 10th, and debated whether Beauregard should be ordered to bombard Sumter at once or wait until the Federal Relief Expedition arrived. But Davis was in favor of opening hostilities immediately, so that day, through his Secretary of War, Leroy Walker, the Confederate president sent Beauregard the necessary order. Quote, If you have no doubt of the authorized character of the agent who communicated to you the intention of the Washington government to supply Fort Sumter by force, you will at once demand its evacuation, and if this is refused, proceed in such manner as you may determine to reduce it. End quote. After receiving those instructions, Beauregard waited just long enough to emplace a wonderful new gun that just arrived from Britain, a powerful Blakely rifled cannon, and he also knew that a shipment of gunpowder from Georgia was scheduled to arrive that night, the 10th. But finally, when all was ready, Beauregard acted to carry out his orders. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. At about 4 p.m. the next afternoon, Thursday, April 11, 1861, a small boat bearing a white flag approached Fort Sumter. Inside the boat were three of General Beauregard's aides, James Chesnut, until recently one of South Carolina's U.S. Senators, Captain Stephen D. Lee, a West Point graduate and U.S. Army officer who had recently switched sides, and A.R. Chisholm, a planter from Beaufort. Upon reaching the fort, the men said that they had a written message for Major Anderson. As he read Beauregard's message, Anderson could see that his former pupil had presented the demand for evacuation as generously as possible. Beauregard would see to it that Anderson and his men could take with them all company arms and property, as well as their personal belongings. And, Beauregard added, Anderson could offer up a salute with cannon fire to the stars and stripes upon its lowering. Major Anderson excused himself and then gathered together his officers. Anderson read them Beauregard's message and asked for their opinions. To a man, his officers urged Anderson to reject the Confederate demand. So Anderson went back and informed Beauregard's aides that his answer was no. As the Major escorted the men back to their boat, he asked if General Beauregard would attack without further notice. James Chestnut, the most senior man, hesitated to answer since the subject had not come up before their departure for the fort. But Chestnut replied, I think not. And after a pause, he continued, No, I can say to you that he will not, without further notice. And then Major Anderson let slip something that no doubt reflected the immense emotional stress and physical strain he'd been under for months now. He told the departing men that if they did not batter the fort to pieces, the garrison would be starved out in a few days. Chestnut appeared startled and asked if he could pass along that information. Well, Anderson seemed embarrassed, perhaps realizing he'd made a mistake, but he still desired to avoid bloodshed if at all possible, and so the Major agreed that Chestnut could pass the information along to Beauregard. It was probably about 5.30 p.m. when Beauregard received Anderson's official reply and the Major's unofficial statement. Beauregard knew he would be well within his orders to open fire on the fort immediately. 
6,000 Confederates now manned the fortifications and batteries ringing Fort Sumter. But Anderson's statement about being starved out in a day or so caused Beauregard to hesitate and then decide to refer the matter back to the Confederate government down in Montgomery. And so Beauregard wired them with this latest news. A little after 9 p.m., he had, he had his reply. If Anderson would promise not to use his guns unless Sumter itself were fired upon, and if he would state exactly when he would evacuate the fort, then it would not be necessary for Beauregard, quote, needlessly to bombard Fort Sumter, end quote. After receiving that message, Beauregard, at about 11 p.m., sent Chestnut, Lee, and Chisholm back out to Sumter with the Confederate government's new terms. Once again, Anderson held a council with his officers. By this time, it was about 1.30 a.m. on Friday, April 12th. The Sumter garrison all knew the relief fleet was due to arrive at any time, so the problem with the new set of terms was that they meant Anderson and his men would have to sit on their hands and do nothing if the Confederate guns opened fire on the relief ships. But they had already done that once, back when the Star of the West was fired upon, and none of the Sumter men were in any mood to stand idly by if the flag was fired upon again. And so as they had with the earlier demand, none of Anderson's officers spoke of anything except doing their duty and rejecting this new offer. Major Anderson therefore wrote out a careful reply for Beauregard's emissaries. He said he would evacuate the fort by noon on Monday the 15th, unless he received, quote, prior to that time, controlling instructions from my government or additional supplies, end quote. Well, Anderson's reply dismayed Chesnut, Lee, and Chisholm, but they knew they now had no choice but to give the major notice that the bombardment would begin shortly. They quickly wrote out a response, with Chesnut dictating, Lee writing, and Chisholm scribbling a copy for Beauregard, it was about 3.20 a.m. when they handed the note to Anderson. It informed the Major that the Confederate batteries would open fire in one hour. The recollections of Lee and Chisholm both agreed that upon reading the note, Anderson was visibly, quote, much affected, end quote. But once again, the Major walked the men out to their boat. In a misting rain, Anderson shook the hand of each of the three men, and said that if they never saw one another again in this world, he hoped they would meet again in a better one. Anderson then walked quietly through the fort, waking the enlisted men, telling them to do nothing and stay under cover until daylight. The Major decided to conserve his limited supply of ammunition and not to return fire until 7 a.m. The garrison had run out of oil for the lamps, so his men couldn't do much until the sun rose anyway. Beauregard's aides wanted to get back to Charleston as quickly as possible, but they knew they first needed to deliver the order to begin the bombardment to the Confederate batteries, so they had their boat pull for Fort Johnson. That fortification on James Island was just a little over a mile away from Sumter and just a bit off a straight line from going back to the city, so it was to Fort Johnson that the men went. The Confederate batteries there, consisting of four mortars, was under the command of Captain George S. James. The aides informed Captain James that they had given Major Anderson a deadline, and they wanted it met. And so James hustled to prepare his guns. Roger Pryor, a Virginian until recently serving in the U.S. House of Representatives, 
had gone out to Sumter with the three aides, but since his home state had not yet seceded, he stayed in the boat while the other men had met with Anderson. But now Pryor was standing with Chestnut, Lee, and Chisholm at Fort Johnson, and Captain James asked the Virginian if he would like to have the honor of pulling the lanyard on the mortar that would fire the first shot at Fort Sumter. Pryor had been one of the most strident voices urging secession and advocating Southern independence. Now, however, he realized that all that was an abstraction, but this, this was real. In a voice choked with emotion, Pryor told Captain James, I could not fire the first gun of the war. In his book Allegiance, Fort Sumter, Charleston, and the Beginning of the Civil War, historian David Detzer writes that Captain James positioned himself, quote, down by the beach battery, whose two guns were officially under the command of Lieutenant Henry S. Farley, standing nearby, watching his two gun crews. When his battery was ready, Farley stepped forward and inserted a friction tube into the vent hole of the gun nearest him. He took the lanyard in his left hand and peered toward Fort Sumter's black outline, just visible against the night sky. A few feet to his right waited Captain James, looking at his pocket watch. This was an historic moment. James, who would soon die in this war, had been told to fire at 4.30. He wanted to get it right. Captain James peered at his watch again. When it read exactly 4.30, he told Farley to fire. L the lieutenant pulled the lanyard, and a shell arced high toward the fort. End quote. The soaring 10-inch mortar shell, its burning fuse leaving a sparkling red-orange trail arching through the night sky, reached its highest point and then tumbled down toward Fort Sumter. It was a perfect shot. The fuse had been cut just right. The shell exploded in the air just above Sumter, looking like a Fourth of July firework, but scattering deadly shrapnel down onto the fort. After that, the other Confederate batteries ringing the harbor opened up on Sumter, until all 43 of Beauregard's guns were steadily pounding away at the silent fort. It was April 12th, 1861. Describing this moment four years hence, in his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln would famously say, And the war came. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is the book we just referenced a moment ago, Allegiance, Fort Sumter, Charleston, and the Beginning of the Civil War by David Detzer. Publishers Weekly said Allegiance is a superb popular history, bringing to life the men on both sides who were responsible for the first shots of the Civil War. And we would agree with that. Um, however, we'd add that Days of Defiance, our recommendation from episode number 30, is still our favorite book on the Sumter Crisis. But Days of Defiance is really a stellar book, so that's no knock on Allegiance, which is certainly uh, a fine book. Well, that seems like a really backhanded compliment, but I'm, I didn't mean it to be. Um, in fact, if you uh, want an account with more uh, fast-paced narrative, then we can recommend Allegiance to you without hesitation. Anyway, I'd better quit uh, while I'm ahead. So I'll remind you that you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.com 
www.blogspot.com. Also at the website, you can find maps and portraits and other stuff relevant to each episode, as well as links to the podcast Facebook page and Twitter feed. So if you haven't checked out the website yet, we encourage you to do so. Exactly. So next time we'll cover the bombardment of Fort Sumter and its surrender, uh, but that's next week. For now, we'll say thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. And I just wanted to say thanks to Tracy for hanging in there through this episode. Um, she's been a real trooper. Uh, she actually has a pretty nasty sinus infection, but not to worry. She's heavily medicated and hopefully she'll be better soon. Well, all right. We hope you guys uh, will join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye.